Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm going to be talking to Adam Hodges about his book, The War on Terror Narrative, published by Oxford University Press. This interesting and provocative book discusses how the events of 9-11 led to the emergence of a political narrative with far-reaching consequences. Analyzing the president's speeches, media discourse, and its public reception, the author explores how one authoritative interpretation of events can reshape world affairs. Hi, Adam. Hi, Chris. Our guest today on New Books in Language is Adam Hodges of Carnegie Mellon University, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The War on Terror Narrative. It's a fascinating study of discourse analysis as applied to some of the most pressing political questions of our time. Adam, perhaps you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work in general. Well, I um, mainly have been looking at uh, political discourse, and of course this book is uh, the result of um, my examination of the uh, discourse of the Bush administration for the past, uh, the last seven years of, of his administration. Um, I'm currently teaching uh, for the rhetoric program in the English department at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Um, I received my PhD in linguistics uh, from the University of Colorado, uh, finished that up in 2008. So. What first motivated you to approach this particular topic? Well, uh, I guess kind of in an ironic twist, uh, 9-11 occurred right during uh, the first year of graduate studies. Um, I began my graduate studies in linguistics in 2001, which of course is 10 years ago. We're coming up on the anniversary of that. Um, And so in many ways, uh, you know, I think the uh, the events of 9-11 really kind of shaped the trajectory that I took uh, in graduate school. Um, I became very interested in trying to understand from a linguistic perspective, from a discourse analytic perspective, um, what was taking place in our nation. Um, and I uh, became very interested in analyzing the, the political discourse of the Bush administration um, and how that was taken up in the media, as well as in conversations that uh, Americans were having with each other about uh, the events of 9-11 and, of course, the subsequent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So in that respect, the book sort of traces the uh, the interest that you've, you've kind of followed in real time. It does, yeah, to, to a large extent. Um, I began working on uh, some of these issues, I think, in 2003, um, so it was a few years into my graduate studies. and. It, you know, became more and more interested in, in looking at this and, and started um, approaching it from different angles. And um, as a sociocultural linguist, you know, I was trying to apply the tools uh, that we have from linguistic anthropology, from sociolinguistics, uh, from discourse analysis, critical discourse analysis. Uh, I was trying to bring all these tools to bear on, on my examination of, of this language. One thing I particularly admired about your book is the way you use, as you say, all these tools, all the um, fairly sophisticated machinery and rather complex terminology of, of the field, but you exemplify it well and you, uh, you 
I felt I learned a lot about how the field itself is put together from reading your book. Was it particularly important to you, given the subject matter, that the book should be accessible to a wider audience? Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm curious as to how a, a broader audience might uh, might receive this book, because um, it, it is very much, as you say, very much an academic book. Um, even though the topic, I think, is uh, very appealing to to a popular audience. Um, so I, I have yet to talk with anybody who does not have a background in linguistics who has read the book. Um, but uh, of course, it just came out. So hopefully, I'll get a chance to to do that and see see how well it uh, it's been received and how accessible it actually is to to a broader audience. One thing that struck me in that respect is that in the introduction, you uh, you clearly state your intention to maintain a neutral stance as to the validity of the concept of the war on terror and that narrative in terms of, uh, as you put it, the its adequacy for accurately describing and explaining the world. It might come as a surprise to readers, given the title of the book, that you're not engaging in any kind of polemic on that point. Uh, what were your reasons for keeping them um, balance? Well, you know, I, I really tried to approach this from an anthropological perspective and um, from a scholarly perspective trying to first understand the power of this narrative um, without trying to maybe prejudge it. Um, it. With that said, you know, I do think that by virtue of choosing this topic, and um, certainly I'm coming at it from a, from a somewhat critical perspective, trying to, as I say, expose this narrative as just one potential story among many Possibilities that could have taken uh, that could have taken shape after after 9/11. Um, you know, I think coming at it from that perspective, there is still a critical edge to it. Um, but uh, you know, certainly, I think my my primary um, allegiance is to uh, scholarly understanding rather than trying to engage in in a polemical debate over the issue. Um, I think that maybe is best left for uh, a different forum. That seems to me a very reasonable perspective, um, although it does make me wonder how you feel about the uh, works by linguists, I think I'm thinking of uh, Lakoff, for instance, who have um, applied techniques of, uh, for instance, discourse analysis in furtherance of, of their own um, political viewpoint, one might say. Right, right. Well, you know, I think uh, my understanding of Lakoff's work, his, some of his popular books like uh, Don't Think of an Elephant, is that those are very much aimed at, at a popular audience. So, um, you know, I think with those aims, I think it, it makes complete sense that he is, is trying to, that, that he is inserting more of a, a partisan perspective in that. You know, if I were to aim this at solely at a popular audience, I may have to come at it from a different angle than than I did in in this particular um, rendition of of the study, um, and maybe it would end up being a little more. Uh, I don't know that I want to say partisan because I, I you know I really don't I really don't view myself as a partisan per se. Um, you know my my allegiance is to scholarship and and understanding um, how discourse really impacts the world in which we live and how it how it shapes the world in which we live. Um, and certainly I, you know, I, I am a citizen as well, um, 
and um, I it was certainly very critical of the Bush administration um, in my private life over over the last seven years of, of his administration. Um, and you know, I think I do make that clear up front in the uh, in the preface to the book as well that part of my motivation for even undertaking this study is was my concern with how was it that this this discourse, this narrative was able to gain so much traction in American society. Because as a citizen watching what happened after 9-11 and, and, and then two years later going into Iraq, um, it was really incredulous in, in many ways. Um, it just, you know, how he was able to convince so many people that this course of action and then how, you know, how the war in Iraq could be tied to the events of 9-11 um, in order to justify his whole foreign policy. It, uh, I, I thought it was quite astounding. So, so I thought, you know, the best way of trying to maybe address this was to, to try to shed some scholarly understanding on the process. Um, and then maybe with that understanding, you know, we could become better informed as citizens in the future and hopefully not not let this happen again. Well, I certainly agree that the objectivity of your book um, lends power to the conclusions in that regard. Uh, and you make throughout the very forcible point about the um, availability of alternative narratives. In fact, turning to the first chapter, uh, you begin your analysis by discussing some of President Bush's first post 9-11 speeches. And very early on, you observe a transition between the characterization of the act in terms of a, uh, a criminal action uh, to it being characterized as an act of war, the first attack in the war on terror. Uh, at what stage does that become evident? Oh, I think I think right away it became pretty evident. Um, you know, within the first few days of, uh, of the events of 9-11. Um, and I, I can't remember the exact uh, Date of the speech that uh, where he used the the explicit term war against terrorism, but I think that was within a day or two after 9/11, and uh, so it very quickly started to take on um, this framing uh, from the voices in the Bush administration, and then of course we saw this being taken up fairly quickly in the media discourse as well. So. Once that was defined, once that reality was defined by the president and his team, um, and it was completely plausible as well, then we saw that sort of take on a life of its own within the media discourse that, that occurred as well. Uh, in the first chapter, you discuss how the move to the war frame is marked by appeal to these powerful analogies with past conflicts. Um, uh, yet, as you observe, these metaphors aren't precise and they're, they're um, reworked by these processes that you refer to as erasure and focalization. Mm -hmm. Could you talk us through that analysis? Right, so so there's certainly aspects of um, the war metaphor that don't quite carry over to this idea of a war against terrorism. Um, with a traditional war, you, you tend to think of, uh, you know, typically there's a, a nation state that's involved, there's uh, the military of a nation state um, that engages in some sort of uh, military activity. Pearl Harbor, of course, is the canonical example that, that Bush draws from. Um, so you have the nation state of Japan, 
their air force engaging in um, a bombing attack against uh, another military installation of the United States. Well, we, we don't have, obviously, this neat carryover um, to the events of 9-11. I mean, we're dealing with, um, you know, aside from the, the Pentagon, we're dealing with uh, the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, um, commercial interests. We're dealing with um, commercial airliners, um, you know, a few hijackers. Um, who hijacked the airplanes, they aren't wearing uniforms. So there's a lot of incongruences here with a war framework. Um, but yet these are able to be erased um, because they don't fit with the ideological scheme of trying to understand these events of 9-11 within the framework of, of war. So you erase the incongruencies and you highlight or focalize the similarities, um, you know, the shock, the destruction, um, the deaths that occurred, and then you're able to fit um, the events of 9-11, these particular events, onto that generic framework of, of war. And uh, as you also point out, it enables the, well, some rather perhaps curious analogies to be drawn between, for instance, the ideology of the, of the enemy of Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, um, to that of well, both Nazism and communism interchangeably. Right. And, you know, one of the fascinating things that one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about the uh, Bush's war on terror narrative is that he is drawing from the Cold War as well as World War Two. And these are two vastly different uh, types of wars uh, within the nation's history. But yet he's able to draw from each of them and pull pieces from each of them in a way that helps to support the idea of a war against terror. Um, and so we have communists become interchangeable with fascists, um, and then they give rise to uh, the heirs, which are said to be the terrorists of the modern day. Um, why, why do you think that kind of approach is able to um, gain traction the way it does? Well, I think it... Um, you know, it draws upon familiar understandings that we all have as Americans, um, this, this collective memory that we have of, of our past. Um, we, we grow up learning about, you know, the good war, World War II. Um, this is when, you know, we fought the good fight. We grow up learning about the uh, mortal enemy of communism. Um, and so once you start drawing from these familiar stories, um, and place these new events on top of that, it just sort of seems to to flow naturally, I think, from from what we what we've experienced before. Um, and so it, it, it becomes very effective in that way. You're not trying to tell a completely different story. You're just simply hitching it to what we already know and um, allowing us to, to really have a lot of the conclusions already pre-drawn um, by the time we get up to this idea of a war against terror. Presumably from that point of view, a lot of the skill of politics uh, comes in obtaining the, the correct frame to uh, cause the people to understand an event in the way that suits your own intentions or your future plans. Sure, but you know, I think a lot of that also um, 
it may be uh, strategically um, discussed, but I think a lot of that also just is is a result of the ideological perspective that these politicians are operating with. So if you view a correct response to terrorism um, through the use of the military, then it makes sense to frame it as a war against terror. Um, you know, if you take a, a different perspective and, and view a correct response to terrorism within the court of law or uh, inter international criminal court through some sort of uh, justice system, then it, it would seem odd for you to even come up with the phrase war on terror. Um, you'd have to come up with a different way of, of framing and talking about that. And so I think, you know, in many ways, these ways of framing the issues almost arise naturally out of the uh, ideological positions that, that we're coming from. But as you point out, the um, consequences are quite profound. Um, for instance, in, in terms of the generalizability of, of the notion of war on terror, uh, as you discuss in the third chapter where you, work, where you talk about Iraq becoming a theater in the, in the war on terror, which presumably wouldn't have been possible under a, under a judicial, or not very obviously possible under a sort of judicial framing. Right, right, not at all. So it definitely has profound consequences. Um, and I think part of the power of this idea of a war on terror and extending that to the war in Iraq and, and being able to subsume this, uh, this venture in Iraq within that scope you know, I think we can look at the way that Congress debated the Iraq War Resolution, which gave uh, President Bush authorization um, to go to war against Iraq. And in that debate, in the resolution that was written up by the U.S. Congress, we actually see the, the Lexine terror appear, I think it was 19 times, within that resolution to go to war with Iraq. And so we certainly see, as you say, the consequences of a framing the world within this you know, framework of a war on terror, sort of filtering into the larger political debate taking place in the country. And Congress certainly, I think, bought into that to a large extent. I think they were swayed by, you know, by this argument that Iraq is another front against terrorism. Therefore, we're going to give the president authorization to uh, invade Iraq. And rapidly, as you discussed, this is, uh, Iraq comes to be characterized as one of the episodes of the of the narrative, as you know, either an automatic or very natural consequence of the of the preceding events, and uh, and something which is uh, very focal to the whole effort from the from the narrative perspective. It does, yeah, and I think you know, really, this is part of the part of the beauty or part of the fascination of of the narrative. I think is that. It, it has this ability to uh, encapsulate these, these disparate foreign policy objectives within its scope. And um, so we see the war in Iraq as a case in point, but potentially it, it remained open-ended so that I think we started to see a push towards uh, opening another front in Iran. That kind of got shut down. Uh, we didn't go far enough to encapsulate another episode within the war on terror. But the framework was in place. And I think if the Bush administration wanted to really make a push for some sort of military action against Iran, um, I think it would have been able to 
draw that in within the, the scope of the war on terror. Um, so, right, so this, you know, opening up this, uh, this so-called front against Iraq, where in Bush's uh, own discourse, Iraq was said to be the quote-unquote central front in the war on terror. It was, a, it was a very powerful move because it was able to, to justify um, a military venture that, if it wasn't linked to terrorism in 9-11, I think the American public would have been very wary of, of, of going to war in Iraq, especially so soon after um, the war in Af Afghanistan. Yes, and as you say, it's it's something that is emphasised as being being structural and a key part of the narrative. I was very struck in reading um, the third chapter of your book, uh, where you lay out the six episodes that uh, that constitute the narrative or terror narrative in your analysis, um, and then you exemplify these by uh, annotating a, a speech uh, by Bush in which he goes through these uh, episodes in pretty much in sequence. How formulaic was the discourse in that respect? How consistently was the uh, was this type of narrative used in the president's speeches? Oh, I would say it was very consistent. Um, it, it, you know, I had a, a corpus of 70 key speeches that were given over the last seven years of his administration that dealt directly with the uh, so-called war on terror. And uh, you know, this was indicative of across those speeches, um, this uh, this narrative that that he gave, um, and and as I say in that chapter, also there there were some slight variations, of course, um, but for the most part, this was very indicative of of his speeches about the war on terror, and I think that was part of the effectiveness of the Bush administration to gain support for their policies, is that they were able to stay on message. They had a coherent, concise narrative uh, that was easy to tell. That was, you know, when people heard it, they recognized it, and, um, and it made sense to people. And it got repeated over and over. Um, and they stayed on message. So I think, you know, that really helped them be successful in gaining the support that they were able to gain. And as you discuss later on, once the uh, narrative is established to that extent, it becomes impossible to uh, to deal with topics in the in the uh, scope of that narrative without acknowledging it. It does, yeah. You you have to, you know, once that that discourse is established, um, if you want to be heard and you want to enter into political debate, you have to you have to speak that discourse. You have to speak that language. Um, so opponents of the Bush administration were faced with a daunting task. You know, they had to try to somehow formulate their own vision of the world and their own um, foreign policies within the framework that had already been established by, by Bush himself. So how do, you, how do you talk about combating terrorism if you're not using some sort of war metaphor or war discourse? Um, it becomes very difficult because, you know, the war on terror really became a shorthand for all of the policies that were associated with it from Afghanistan to Iraq um, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, you know, it's easy if you're an opponent. You, you say war on terror, okay, people sort of 
draw upon this common understanding of what that means, and then you try to go off and give your own perspective on it. Well, by that point, you've already um, you've already called up all of these uh, understandings that uh, have been predefined by the Bush administration. So, you know, I think it, it it's very difficult to to challenge a uh, dominant or or imposing discourse once it's been established to that extent. Um, but of course, in the book, I try to show that it's not impossible. And just by virtue of um, entering into a new context, uh, there's always going to be subtle changes that are introduced to to that discourse. Yeah. On, on the point of um, the compulsion to remain within the discourse, you, you mentioned uh, a speech given by uh, then Senator Joe Biden in 2006, uh, where you could see that he's tailoring or perceive that he's tailoring his remarks to fit within the discourse um, and is objecting to the uh, Bush foreign policy on the basis that it places Iraq as the as, as the central front in the war on terror rather than Afghanistan. Right. Uh, yeah. Do, do you, did you feel at the time that the uh, the acceptable uh, the acceptable discourse that like window of possible um, counter proposals was uh, was being narrowed by the existence of this very powerful narrative well I think I think it certainly was and I think that's a prime example that you just mentioned um, so it, you know instead of trying to completely rupture this idea of a war against terrorism um, what a lot of the Democrats did uh, Joe Biden you mentioned um, and we saw this this strategy even uh, taking place during the 2008 uh, lead up to the presidential elections is that a lot of the Democratic opponents were trying to shift, um, you know, the, the main front or the main focus in the war on terror. So in Bush's narrative, Iraq was the central front in the war on terror. According to Biden and Obama and some of the others, this became uh, Afghanistan. So you're still working within this war on terror discourse. You're still presupposing this idea that terrorism can be um, uh, taken care of through uh, military means, but you're just shifting the locus of where that military action is going to take place. So from Iraq to Afghanistan. And I think we've, we're experiencing today the, the remnants of that, that discourse and the policy that it entails, because over the past several years of the Obama administration, um, sure, we've drawn down troops in Iraq and you know, nominally we've we've left Iraq, um, the major combat operations that supposedly ended in Iraq, um, but we've redoubled the efforts in Afghanistan, and there was a, a surge of military uh, troops sent to Afghanistan, and so you can see very much that there is still a war on terror, according to the Washington establishment today. It's just that Afghanistan is where that war on terror is being fought primarily. So interestingly, as you say, Obama has uh, ceased, or at least at the time of writing, has ceased to use the term war on terror. He did, yeah. Yeah, and that's how I, I end my book, as, as you note. Um, and I thought that was pretty fascinating, of course, finishing up the writing um, in early 2009, and, and I think we were all very hopeful that this shift in rhetoric might entail a shift in policy as well. Um, 
So beginning on the election night in November of 2008, when Obama gave his acceptance speech after um, he won the election, or his victory speech rather, um, we hear very specifically in that speech the mention of two wars, a war in Afghanistan, a war in Iraq. Um, so a very different way of framing the issue uh, than we heard during the Bush administration, where there was one single overarching war on terror. And of course, that continued um, through the beginning of the Obama administration. And it's true, we don't hear the war on terror anymore used by his administration. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of the policies have, have still remained in place. So why do you surmise it is that the, the term itself was abandoned despite having attained this, this sort of narrative preeminence? Well, I think, you know, to, to a large part, the President of the United States holds a lot of uh, some symbolic power to be able to set the, um, not just the political agenda for the country, but also the discursive agenda for the country. Um, and so with Obama coming into office and just dropping this idea, this phrase, war on terror, and this idea of a war on terror from his rhetoric, um, you know, I think the media followed suit. Uh, just in the same way that when Bush began to define immediately after the events of 9-11, this war against terrorism, we saw that being taken up in the media discourse in a similar manner, you know, when Obama came to office, we saw the media sort of adopting his his framework for uh, discussing some of these issues. Although interestingly, the um, the move was quite tacit and negative, in as much as although, as you point out, in the inauguration speech, reference is made to two wars rather than the war on terror. Uh, nevertheless, as you um, discuss later in your book. No explicit directive, no, no, no policy was ever announced that the term wouldn't be used. Correct, yeah. Do you think that reflects a certain unwillingness to spend political capital on that effort? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think it, it reflects maybe more the nature of political discourse, where a lot of times you are you're defining the world implicitly rather than explicitly. So there, you know, there really isn't a need, I think, for, for presidents to, to come out and sort of formulate in explicit terms their rhetorical agenda as opposed to their political agenda, which they do very much explicitly um, um, articulate. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. Presumably, some sort of explicit uh, repudiation of a term like that is, is itself you know, fraught with potential political danger and controversy. I'm thinking here of uh, uh, your account of the, the spat between Anderson Cooper of CNN and uh, is it Mike Baker of Fox about the right. phrase so-called war on terror. Yeah, certainly. So you're, you're opening yourself up to a certain amount of backlash and... Um, counter discourse. And we did see that, as you say, in, in the spring of 2009, once it was evident that the war on terror was um, absent from Obama's discourse, a lot of commentators, uh, conservative commentators in the country were, were very upset about that. 
and um, you know came out and accused him of, of sort of denying reality. Um, and so I think, you know, I would agree that probably the Obama administration's response was the most effective was to not make a big deal about that, to just kind of let it let it fall out of the discourse without drawing too much attention to it, and then eventually. Um, you know, I think the, they figured the country would sort of adopt that discursive agenda, and I, and I think the country has for the most part. So, uh, what what is left? I mean, what is the what is the dominant narrative now in that respect? Well, I think that is a large problem of the Obama administration is that they haven't come up with a uh, coherent narrative in the way that the Bush administration did. So I don't really think that we have um, a narrative like we uh, now, like we did during the Bush administration, to define um, you know what's taking place in the world. I think uh, you know as as uh, gifted as Obama is as a um, as a writer and as a speaker, I think he uh, he sort of has has fallen short within the. In, in communicating his his underlying core message to the American people, I mean, in many ways, you know, it's kind of ironic, right? Bush came into office and he was sort of derided as uh, someone who wasn't a very good speaker and he didn't have a very good command of English, supposedly, um, and so he got a lot of flack for that. But yet, he and his team came up with this very simple, beautiful message that. They stuck with and and you know really sort of ingrained itself into the American psyche, and Obama is sort of the opposite, right? He's very nuanced. He's very articulate. He um, you know he reminds us of a college professor, so he's uh, sort of has more of an intellectual uh, bent to him, and uh, he could certainly discuss you know many uh, different aspects of of the foreign policy, but when it comes to sort of Condensing that into a into a, a simplified message to get out into the media, uh, I think he's run into some problems with that. Do you feel personally conflicted on that point? Um, considering that, on the one hand, to, to uh, advance a single narrative is to take a fairly arbitrary decision about the way in which reality is going to be packaged and presented, but on the other, that in the absence of that um, actions that you agree with politically are liable to be misunderstood or misinterpreted. Yeah, I, I am very conflicted about that. Um, you know, especially as a as an intellectual um, who does a lot of work in academia. I, you know, I, I admire that type of discourse where we can have very nuanced, complex discussions about topics. But unfortunately. That type of discourse that takes place within the university setting is very different from the type of discourse that is effective in the political setting. Um, so I guess the question is that, that really you're addressing is how do we what do we do about that? Um, you know, you mentioned George Lakoff earlier, and certainly within his work, I think he's kind of come around to the viewpoint that well, then we should try to shape the political message. I think intellectuals historically have had maybe a little bit of trouble with that because we're sort of we sort of operate with this ideology that, well, if we you know the truth will set us free if we uh, 
or this enlightenment ideology that if we if we can have nuanced thoughtful discussions about issues then everybody can come to some sort of consensus or at least try to make up their own mind through some sort of critical reflective process and as we know politics doesn't work that way um, if everything is boiled down to sound bites and talking points that you know get rearticulated with within 30 seconds to maybe a minute or two on the evening news um, and that's really about the time that any given politician has to get their message across you know if you can get if you can boil your message down to a 30 second sound bite then chances are you're going to be heard over um, the person who maybe has a more thoughtful understanding of the issues but it's going to take him 30 minutes to discuss those perspectives. Well, I think that's very true. Um, I'd like to turn, if I may, on the basis of what you just said, to some of the part of your work which I think casts an interesting light on that, uh, where you discuss the narrative's reception among college students, politically active college students. Mm -hmm. um, was it a surprise to you that the uh, the Republican college students were themselves fairly ambivalent in some cases about the about the use of the term war on terror or that narrative? Or do you think that just reflects the fact that people in that environment tend to uh, tend to be resistant to the kind of easy classification that uh, that comes with the narrative? Uh, with regard to the actual metaphor, war on terror, I, th I mm. think you're maybe referring to that a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, because it was a little surprising maybe that both Democrats and Republicans they criticized this metaphor a little bit because they saw it as as problematic. And again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, what is what are the incongruencies between this framework of war and the actual events of 9-11? Um, it's not a traditional war. Um, there's not a traditional nation state, a traditional military involved. Um, and I think even some of the Republicans saw that and they had had some issues with that. Um, but yet, despite some of their um, hesitancy to fully accept the label of a war on terror, um, the Republicans did seem to overwhelmingly agree that, well, that's kind of what we're stuck with, and, and it's really a lot better than saying war in Afghanistan or war in Iraq, because according to them, and very much in line with uh, Bush administration view, these are just fronts within a single war. So, um, it, you know, it was interesting to, to hear them talk about it in that way. Generally speaking, would you say it's the case that people will question an established narrative if they're forced to engage with it? Well, um, I think, yeah, I mean, there's certainly the potential to um, to challenge it um, if you're forced to engage with it, but I don't think that necessarily follows. Maybe the easier route is simply to um, to accept it without really challenging it. Um, and as we saw, even the opponents who, who didn't quite accept the policy of a war on terror still adopted its language. You know, it didn't really seem to challenge the language per se even though they were trying to undermine the policies that were entailed with that language. Do you feel that um, the opposition 
were cur curtailed fundamentally by the lack of what I think you describe as nomination power. That the say that again, the opposition uh, to the war on terror that were, were curtailed in being able to establish a, a competing narrative by this uh, by this lack of nomination power by the by the lack of being able to control the leaves of power, generally speaking. Yeah, or, I think that's right. I think that's that's a good way to put it. Um, is that they they didn't have that nomination power, so it was very difficult to uh, create a counter narrative from whole cloth. So what you're left with is the existing narrative, and so you try to pull pieces of that narrative out and and recreate it and reshape it um, into your own narrative. Curiously, it seems as though in, in some of the um, examples you described, the people without obvious political power are in some ways able better to uh, to challenge and undermine the narrative than those who have perhaps something to lose within the within the system. I think so. Yeah, and um, of course they're they're also the ones that are probably heard the least. Um, but you know, there, there's definitely something to that idea of the the court jester who's given leeway to to say whatever he wants, but in the end he's not taken seriously. Um, and uh, you know, for the more entrenched politicians, so a lot of the Democratic senators um, who are entrenched in the Washington establishment, for them they really had to more or less toe the line that was established um, and adopt this stance vis-a-vis -vis the war on terror and try to make more subtle changes, um, more subtle points using that language. But whereas some of the college students that I talked with, of course, they were much more free to, to criticize and um, envision alternative perspectives. Or so we see that in the alternative media as well, once you get outside of the mainstream media. So you get outside of CNN or um, uh, you know, PBS or Fox News or the New York Times, you get into some alternative venues. And I mentioned uh, the radio show Democracy Now! in the book where we saw some um, tactics of resistance being used within the discourse of, of those shows. Um, but then again, those shows don't have as, as large of a following as uh, Anderson Cooper's CNN show does, for example, or the New York Times readership. No, I'm, I'm curiously, I think I saw the uh, phrase so-called war on terror on the BBC News website yesterday, but um, mm -hmm. it's probably too late to, to make a lot of difference. Yeah, and of course, you know, I was looking primarily at uh, American media, so the story outside of the American context was was vastly different. Um, I think for Americans who were able to access um, European media sources, especially during the run-up to the war in Iraq, I think were much better informed. Um, I think the BBC did a much better job of covering some of those issues than uh, the mainstream American media did. Um, it, it's almost like, you know, even in our globalized world, I think a lot of Americans still primarily go to American news sources to get their information, and I think this was very much the case in the early part of uh, the decade when the Bush administration was trying to make its case for war against Iraq, and they just weren't able to see the alternative perspectives. So it almost became, a, you know, this type of groupthink within, within the country.
Although I suppose one might say that um, with respect to the international anti-war movement, that the alternative narrative that was being proffered there wouldn't necessarily be one that was very palatable to the um, average American citizen. That might be true. Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, maybe uh, a wariness towards uh, international or European perspectives within the American context. Uh, certainly we hear that discourse coming from uh, more conservative and Republican figures. And they sort of see, equate European ideas with socialism. Um, and that's sort of this mortal enemy of, of American society, supposedly. So, so that could be one barrier right there as to why Americans would be more hesitant to turn to some of those sources. On the other hand, one very powerful um, analogy, which is highly relevant to the American context, was that of Vietnam, which you take up in the final chapter of your book. Right. Uh, and you examine how the interpretation of that analogy was contested. Uh, but you describe it as a, as a less readerly analogy than World War II, for example. Could you develop that point? Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this Vietnam analogy was was fascinating because, as we discussed earlier, World War II and the Cold War really formed the two primary source domains that Bush drew upon to try to narrate this war on terror. And so Vietnam was was completely absent from that. But in American society, we have um, sort of this fascination with the Vietnam era. And a lot of the critics of the war against Vietnam and a lot of the critics of the war against Iraq sort of see Vietnam as this uh, period in American history where, where things went badly wrong because our leaders misled us. Um, we got engulfed in a war that we shouldn't have been involved in. Uh, we lost, you know, thousands of American lives. It was just a tragic episode that resulted in what we commonly hear um, among critics at, in a quagmire. You know, we were in, involved in this quagmire, the so-called quagmire in Vietnam. And so this became a very powerful source domain uh, in the nation's collective memory that critics of the Bush administration were able to draw upon. Um, you know, we started uh, into Iraq and things started going going badly. It wasn't over as quickly as, as uh, the Bush administration and uh, Rumsfeld and, and the neoconservative thinkers had promised. And we started losing more American lives. And so this becomes ripe for comparison with um, Vietnam. And we started seeing critics of the Bush administration draw upon that analogy, equating Iraq with Vietnam. And it got to the point where, you know, that became very, very loud. It became hard to ignore, I think, for the Bush administration. And so finally we saw Bush, um, he, he started, he realized, I think, he had to do something to sort of counter that that narrative that was out there about Vietnam. And so he tried to appropriate that analogy from this critics and try to bring Vietnam back within the fold of the war on terror. And so, of course, for Bush, his vision of Vietnam is very different from the perspective that the critics were uh, providing on Vietnam. It wasn't a quagmire, but it was a, it was a, a vital fight against communism for Bush. Um, it was central to the Cold War, which we did see previously in Bush's narrative, right? 
Vietnam was central to the Cold War in the same way that Iraq was said to be the central front in the war on terror. Um, so it's really interesting how Bush, I think, appropriated that analogy and tried to bring that back within the fold of the uh, war on terror narrative. And I think it really underscores the fact that, you know, there's this ongoing continual uh, dialogic pressure that's exerted on even dominant narratives like this so that the war on terror narrative is anything but static. You know, Bush was able to rework it and reshape it. He was trying to obviously stay on message in doing so, but he was he was reshaping it um, within the midst of these competing pressures that were trying to sort of unmoor it from its its ideological grounds. Um, so I thought that was a, a pretty fascinating episode that we saw, you know, towards the end of Bush's administration. Yes. Um, would you say it was an article of faith for this analytic approach that there are always going to be several possible ways of interpreting events? I mean, to take the case of Vietnam, it seems the the um, the treatment of it as a quagmire, in at least in perception, is is sufficiently dominant for the that for a narrative um, of the kind advanced by Bush's opponents to become very difficult to disagree with. Mm -hmm. But I mean, would you would you say that there are some would you deliberately shy away from this question in the book, but would you say there are some narratives that uh, naturally suggest themselves? Oh, certainly. I think um, there's definitely going to be some constraints placed on interpreting any events. Um, and, you know, the maybe the more leaderly texts um, you know, are, are more apt to be used um, in certain situations um, because, you know, there's there's more there's more ideological work that's already been put in place, so to speak. Um, so it's easier to draw from certain narratives, perhaps, to to come to understandings about events. I mean, you know, the, the United States is um, very much, I argue, a uh, a military culture. Um, and so in many ways, this idea of a war on terror, you know, is probably one of the first in line, to, you know, first narratives in line to be used to to come to some sort of understanding of, of uh, what happened on 9-11. So we, you know, I think cultures sort of go to what they know best first. Um, and then only after that would they consider alternative possibilities. So there's sort of maybe default settings, we could say, that certain cultures have that they would turn to, um, certain default narratives that are already in place and established that they would turn to first. Yes, and presumably more prototypical events within certain narratives. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I wondered in reading the only portion of your book, whether the, whether the dominance of the war narrative uh, as, a, as a, um, a narrative in which 9-11 was a major event arose partly because the sheer enormity of the, uh, of the event rendered it a poor fit for a criminal narrative. 
I think so. I think that probably had a large part to do with it. Um, I mean, what do you do with almost 4,000 people dying, you know, within the scope of a few hours? Um, that sort of catastrophic events, you know, almost, how do we make sense of that? I mean, in the other situations where we have that are, are wars. Um, you know, we have, it'd be hard to maybe go to a famine first off. Um, because the famine maybe takes a little bit longer to to wreak that sort of uh, carnage, um, you know, disease or an epidemic. You know, what are some other things that other source domains that we can use to to make sense of these events? I think in many ways, you know, the the sudden nature of it maybe lends itself to um, you know that war framework. But nevertheless, you would advocate that we should be more open-minded in which kinds of frameworks we postulate or consider as potentially explanatory? Well, I think it's important to to remain critical, of course, of you know, any explanation of, of events like this. Um, you know, any, any narrative that, that we hear coming from politicians, we have to, I think, view through a critical lens because it's certainly it's certainly one among many potential explanations, but it's also being filtered through their ideological lens. So, and and it's going to benefit their ideological perspective, and that may not benefit, you know, the nation as a whole or the the world as a whole. So, you know, I think it's important to to examine the assumptions that we're making. Um, it's not to say that some assumptions maybe aren't valid, but if we don't critically assess those, then, then how are we going to, to know for sure if we don't have a discussion? I mean, democracy is supposed to be predicated upon this um, idea of people getting together to discuss and debate issues. If we shut that down, if we don't have that, then do we really have a democracy? So to ask one final question on that topic. Do you see the future as being one in which we're constrained by narratives, these narratives which in many cases are foisted upon us from above, or do you take a take a view that we will learn to think critically? Well, you know, I think, and, and I really try to um, make the point in the book, especially in the conclusion, that I, you know, I don't want to leave readers with this impression that. Um, we're incapable of challenging these dominant narratives or dominating narratives. Um, you know, the point I wanted to try to leave readers with is that there's always going to be subtle pressure, even within what may seem to be a dominant system. And just by virtue of getting together and talking with, you know, citizens talking with each other or, um, you know, writing to the representatives or engaging in some sort of uh, democratic debate or discussion, there's going to be pressures put on on these larger um, narratives, and they're always open to changing. Um, and I think, you know, certainly there's a lot of power that people have when they come together to create their their own narratives and their alternative visions of uh, of the future. I think um, so. You know, I, I would hope that maybe uh, there's that that hopefulness that that the book ends with a little bit and doesn't leave people too depressed. 
Well, I'm not sure we did anything for the future, but it's been a real pleasure having this discussion with you. Adam well, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. That was Adam Hodges talking about his new book, The War on Terror Narrative. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.